the anointing of God in me, the anointing teaching of the word. She might change us, transform us in this place. We know you can do it. We know you're able. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's Easter. My college-age son is in town for the weekend. My mama is here. We have a choir behind us. Our very own John Maxwell did a reading, and I'm going to say it. His voice is better than Morgan Freeman, okay? Some of you know Morgan. Tell him I said it. He knows where to find me, okay? Thank you, John Maxwell. It is Easter, and I'm so glad that you're here. Maybe you came today because someone invited you, and they bribed you with lunch or you came because she invited you and she's pretty. We're just glad that you're here today. I was sitting in my third floor office looking down on this beautiful lawn. I was writing this Easter sermon and Jason Matisse was out front making the grounds look good. And there was a Corvette that pulled up and I just thought the guy knew Jason. He was driving by. His name is Larry. Real nice Corvette convertible. He pulled in and was wanting to know when our Easter services are. So Larry, if you're here, I didn't see him at the 930, so I'm hoping Larry is here. If you see a guy pulling away in a Corvette with a vanity plate on the back, just tell him, Larry, glad you came. Come back to see us. We're so glad that you're here all week. I've had some of you say, well, Robert, Sunday's like the Super Bowl for you, and boy, you got to have your A game, and I, I just don't do well with pressure. Can I say that? That we have two kickers in our in our midst, or in our church, uh, one that kicks professionally and one uh, kick collegiately in an SEC football game. This young man trotted out on the field with seconds left and beat LSU on a last second field goal. Like I couldn't be that guy. If the coach put me in with all that pressure, I'd be I'd go fetal. You know, I mean, I, I'd ask for the the second string. But look, just no pressure, right? Everybody say it. No pressure, RG. There we go. We rest in the gospel. I want to begin this morning with a question. Ready for this? You might expect it, but let's look afresh. Who is Jesus. It is a question, hear me now, that has not gone away for millennial. It's a question that persists. It's gnawing and it is unrelenting. It stays with us no matter, despite a bleak past, dark ages, an inquisition, crusades, scandals of hypocrisy, leaders failing through money and scandal and sex. All of this, the rise of secularism, the intellectual renaissance, the flat earth, the global village, despite all of this, the question remains, and it's central to humanity, who is Jesus? We're a young church. Good gracious, look around. And in the, this young church, I can say this all the time, even on Easter, I am much older than most of you. And I've lived life and lived different places. And I can tell you, I've had the who is Jesus conversation and interaction from the sands of South Beach to the pier at Santa Monica in a subway underneath Manhattan to, to a skyscraper here in Jackson and out in Madison and Rankin County. Last or this past Tuesday night, I was driving in an adjacent suburb, we'll call it, of the metro area really, really late. I was pulling through a parking lot. I was the only one there, lo and behold, until a law enforcement officer pulled me over. Now listen to this very carefully, every word. When he pulled me over, I had my hands 10 and 2, the dome light on. I rolled down my window. As he approached the vehicle, he said, Robert, was that a body hanging out the back? And I said, it was. Be patient with the illustration. It was my 102-pound golden retriever. I rolled down the back-tinted windows, and the officer, uh, amused, let my dog lick his face. I thought, that's a good sign. I hadn't done anything wrong. He knows my name. My dog's licking his face. I'm not going to get a citation. And the officer said, hey, Robert, you remember you married me those years ago. And, and 
I said yes. I didn't, but I said yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was trying to think of his name and her name and the venue and all that stuff. It was many, many years ago. Some of you think I remember everything. And I, I was like trying to get this recollection. I said, well, how's she doing? How are you doing? He said, well, we got divorced. And I said, it was inappropriate humor in a, in a, in a situation. I said, well, my batting average is not as high uh, as I thought. He said, well, check that because we remarried. She and I remarried. And there, instead of a traffic citation, I heard a Jesus story. The night before, at dusk, I was running. I'm training for something, I'm not sure what, but I was running. I was doing a long run, and it was taking me through downtown Jackson. And as I was running, uh, I passed a man who looked like he was in dire straits. A man who looked like he was doing much worse than you look happy, bright, shiny on Easter. And I called out to him. I was running about a nine-minute mile, and I called out to him from behind. I said, you all right? And before I could get out of earshot, he said, I could use something to eat. And I kept running, and I had another mile and a half back to my vehicle. And as I ran back, I remembered the words of a guy named John, a close personal friend of Jesus, one of the early followers. And John said, he would write 1 John 3, that if you have the love of God in you, and you have, and you see someone who is in need, and you do not give to them, how can God's love dwell in you? A follower of Jesus, learning from another follower of Jesus. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? Like if you have and you see someone in need and you don't give, you're, you don't have God's love in you. Now, I don't know how you practice that. I'm trying to practice it in my own life, but that's pretty clear, isn't it? Like that's, that's someone, that's the compelling vision of following Jesus. Who is Jesus? Some would say he's sort of a first century yuppie, hippie, self-help guru. Or maybe he is um, a political activist or actually he was wanting to be subversive, a, an outsider uh, an anti-establishment lone voice in the wilderness. Who is Jesus? I've done this before, but never on Easter. I want everybody, uh, when I, when I uh, give the indication, I want you to tell uh, the year that you were born. So first of all, think of the year you were born. Some of you are old, so a few of you. Think of the year you were born, and I want us to all say it out loud. Okay, one, two, three. That year that you said the Bible was the best-selling book. No matter what year you said, the Bible was the best-selling book. The New Testament of the Bible is a culmination of the Old, and the nucleus of the New Testament are four biographers who answer this question for us, who is Jesus? And they give us a few things. I'll give you a few this morning. Nobody takes notes on Easter. I know that, but anyway. They, they depict him as a teacher. The Hebrew word there is rabbi. You've heard of that. Jesus went from town to town, village to village. He went from synagogue to synagogue, teaching and instructing, proclaiming and announcing the good news. He was a teacher, and he taught with such authority. He taught with such authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. Everybody knew there's something different. Now, people drew vastly different conclusions as they do today. But something was very different about this man and how he taught. His fame spread so fast, so far and wide, that synagogues and indoor arenas could not contain him. They had to take it out in the open air, into fields and into mountains. And the most famous sermon, some of you are turned off by that word sermon, but the most famous speech, the most famous talk ever given was the Sermon on the Mount. And some of you know that we were there six, seven weeks ago, and we stood above the Sea of Galilee. Uh, look at that. 
It is stunning. And this was us in the vicinity, if not the very place where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's why I'm a follower of Jesus today. Listen, it's not just a sermon. It's without parallel. And the teachings there give us a compelling picture of what it is to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus. And not just that, it is a stunning vision of what it means to be human. Jesus was a teacher like no other. But Jesus was not just a teacher, he was Messiah. He was a Messiah king. There was something about him, Mark the biographer in particular, stands out from the other three when he over and over again talks about Jesus' central message is this. There is a kingdom, a kingdom of God, and it is different. Everybody's got a kingdom, your house, your auto, your lawn, your beach house, your extra place. You have a kingdom. This is my stuff, and you guard and protect your kingdom. It's mine. And Jesus is saying there's a different kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. The kingdom is near. The time has come. Repent, metanoia in the Greek. Change your mind. Believe the good news. Don't you know we need some good news? Don't you know in this world today we hunger for good news, and that's what the gospel is, and that's what Jesus brings. The biographers teach us that he's a teacher, but not just a teacher. He's a Messiah, and not just a Messiah. He is Lord. Kyrios in the Greek, it means, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew proper name Yahweh, God. Now think of this, don't miss it. Don't miss this. These early followers, hours and days after the resurrection, they worshipped this man. They worshiped Jesus. Now these were Jews. They were monotheistic. They believed in one God. They rejected idolatry and Greek mythology and it was so powerful to them that they began to worship this man. The creator stepped into creation and the resurrection as it has done for me is enough to say we believe Jesus is Lord. That saying becomes famous with people of the way who later would be called Christians. Jesus is Lord and we say it today. No more important declaration. So there's this question, who is Jesus? He's teacher, he's Messiah. Jesus is Lord, he's a king. And I would say to you this Easter Sunday, he's a comeback king. There's no greater comeback story than that of the resurrection. And I know what's happening in some of your hearts. Some of you let me in. And I know that some of you need a comeback. That today feels like Friday or Saturday. It's the in-between. It's pre-resurrection. You're in that, that time between I hope and I know. And you, know, you don't want to hope anymore. You want to know. And Jesus is the comeback. Who loves a comeback? Do you? Like we go and we see movies like Hoosiers and Rudy and Invincible. I love Hoosiers is my favorite movie because Gene Hackman, and you tell me I look like Gene Hackman, a younger version of Gene Hackman. But we all love, don't we nod your head if you're with me, we all love a comeback story. Let me show you a few. Here's a photo of the Chicago Cubs recently winning uh, the World Series. Remember that night Josh Stretch does, I was over at their place. Here's the Chicago Cubs. They had not won the World Series since 1908. They're acting like you would act if you hadn't done something since 1908. What a comeback story. What you don't know is a couple of other things happened in the news that same day, but it didn't make the headlines. Pigs flew, hell froze over, but we were so focused on the Cubs winning the World Series. Let me show you a picture of this lady, Diana 
Miad. She's the first person, hear me now, not first woman, first person to ever swim from Cuba to Miami. She tried it four times, a real weakling, right? She was, she was set back by sunburn and uh, tough conditions, sharks and stings, multiple stings by jellyfish. And so four times she turned away. She didn't make it, but she did on the fifth time. What a great comeback story, girl power. Next, you'll see another one. Did you see the movie Soul Surfer or have you read the book? This is Bethany Hamilton. Bethany Hamilton was swimming one day as a 13-year-old and a, ready for this, if you don't know it, a shark ate off her arm, like arm gone. No hope for amputation. The arm is gone. Now, if I see a shark within 20 miles of me, I'm never going in the ocean again. Like Steven Spielberg and Jaws messed me up at an early age. And here this girl, girl power today on Easter, she goes back into the water and becomes a professional surfer and a really good one at that. We love a comeback story. This week playing before our screens as it has really the whole month is a guy named Austin Hatch. Austin was a former Michigan basketball player. He's now a graduate assistant. And when he was a young man, he was in a plane crash. His father was piloting the plane. His mother died and his siblings. Remarkably, tragically, eight years later, another plane crash. His father and stepfather and stepmother, they die. And he is in a medically induced long-term coma. And he is brought back and healing takes place. And he's got to learn to walk and talk. And, of course, Michigan receives him and applauds him and my own son was telling me that about a month ago they had senior night at Michigan there in Ann Arbor and he comes out could you imagine all the other seniors were running out to who to their families at midcourt all of his family is dead but his family is in that arena his family is all around him and they are applauding him and as you know Michigan plays for the national championship tomorrow night and this guy is their inspiration if they win some of you don't know this Tuesday night, they'll play the Lady Dogs for the overall national championship. We're so excited about that. Tell me you don't love a comeback story. The Bible gives us story after story of comeback. Strange that in our hearts as humans, I know this because I have been there, but in our hearts as humans, we think when we fail, we think when we're down and we have a setback, that we, we isolate ourselves. We don't go to church and we don't run to God because we failed. Yet this best-selling book of all time, When Were You Born? The Bible sold more copies than any other book that year. This book is full of comeback stories, but nothing like Easter and nothing like the story of Jesus. Jesus of, do you know the town? Jesus of, Jesus of Nazareth. Good, I was afraid somebody was going to say Bethlehem. Jesus of Nazareth. We were in this uh, town with our friends six, seven weeks ago. And this town in biblical times was a podunk village. Anybody from a town of less than 500 people, that's Nazareth. Yeah, not ashamed to admit it. That's Nazareth back then. And it was this uh, insignificant agricultural village, trust me, up on a steep slope, a beautiful view, but not a place you want to be from necessarily. John's gospel, one of those who give a sketch, a biographical sketch of Jesus talks about this. He uses sarcasm 
and he says that Philip was telling his close friend Nathaniel that he was now a follower of Jesus. And Nathaniel said back to Philip, a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. But we see in our Savior, we see in this man Jesus a comeback story. Luke chapter 24, I should have given you a heads up for those of you who like to turn. We'll have it on the screen. I'm going to read it from my Bible, Luke 24, 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. These are women. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with whom he told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. A couple of thoughts about this passage. Let me just say, backing up a little bit, if I had told this story, if it was make-believe and it came from the mind of Robert Greene, I would have told it differently on many fronts. I'll tell you two. First thing I would do is if I was telling this story and making it up, I wouldn't have women come to the tomb first. Don't be offended by that. It's just the culture of that society, a Hellenistic society, a patriarchal culture where women in many ways were seen as property and their word of testimony was not even permissible in a court of law. If I was writing the story, I would have had a Roman soldier or a disciple or a really, um, really influential political figure go to the tomb, but we don't have that, do we? God has a message in that. The second thing I would do differently, not only would the women not be first to the tomb, the disciples wouldn't have doubted. Can you believe Luke puts it in, in there? Man, I would have had the disciples getting up that morning, man, they were stretching, they were putting ink under their eyes and popping their pads, man, they had their ankles taped, they, you know, shirt off, they, their paint chest are painted, they're, they're ready to, to go to the borrowed tomb and they know that Jesus is going to rise because he told them he was, they believed his words were true and they are there 10, 9, 8, right, they, they played the final countdown before they came, now they're 10, 9, Eight, right? The, the, the music rumbles and the bright light is behind the tomb. Six, five, four, three, two. And Jesus emerges. And like he's wearing a, like one of those boxer hoodies, you know. Like all we do is win, win, win. Like they stand up, you know. And the hands go up and they stay there. Like it would have been one of those things where, where man like, you know, DJ Khaled and the disciples would have, like they would have like been there and they would have predicted. I would not have had the disciples doubting. And they thought even later it was an idle tale. So funny to me that some of us think that there's no room for doubt in following Jesus. So odd that you think that you can't fall back at times, that you can't fail and you can't be in a place that's so dark that you wonder if it's true. Can I free you today? Like Luke is a doctor. He's a detailed guy. Probably had bad handwriting, but he was a doctor. And he says to us that the disciples doubted. Amazing. 
two questions related to Easter. The, the, uh, one and two, the second question was asked to me over a cup of coffee at Brent's last week. The first question, why the crucifixion? I mean, it's a cross, okay, but it's a crucifixion. Like, this is blood and guts and gore. Why? This story, you just can't clean it up. You know, we do that, don't we? We clean it up. My wife, Susan, and her friend, Shay, they, they every Sunday at 9.30, they watch two-year-olds down the hall. They're blessed by that, and I know the two-year-olds are blessed by them. And recently, I was looking at the curriculum from Lifeway when they were talking from John chapter 2 where Jesus famously turns the water into wine. That's some of your favorite miracle in the Bible. But it says that Jesus, dig this, Jesus turned the water into a super fancy party drink. Isn't that great? That's what they tell the kids. Jesus turned wine into a super fancy party drink. I've seen some of you in Fondren out on the town enjoying a super fancy party drink. Like, there's something in us that wants to clean up the story for the kids or the big kids. But this crucifixion really can't be cleaned up. The crucifixion, you see, wasn't invented for Jesus. That's a misnomer. The Romans had invented it for those criminals that were executed. And Rome did it. it was their, they became experts, okay? Not going to clean this up for you today. They became experts on how to inflict the most physical, emotional, mental punishment on someone to the point of death without actually killing them. It was prolonged agony. And not only that, it was a billboard. It was a message. They would leave these criminals by the side of the road for people to look and to see. Now, when you drive down the road, Lakeland Drive or somewhere, or the interstate, you see billboards, right? Richard Swartz, one call, that's all. Morgan and Morgan for the people, maybe the prophet. You see these You see these billboards, right? Who's coming in concert? What washed-up artist is coming to the Pearl River Resort and Casino that you old folks are so excited to go see? You look at the billboard, and you know the billboard has a message for you. And just like it does us, back then, for the Romans and their barbaric empire, it was a message. What was the message? You know it? Don't mess with Rome. What was ultimately intended to be a demonstration of Roman imperialism and power, by the way, what happened to them, was a demonstration a brilliant man named Paul would later say in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated God's billboard for you was that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. How ugly was the crucifixion? How ugly is our sin? What a demonstration that power, the greatest power, is a non-violent, enemy-loving, sacrificial love, gift. Second question I get is, what's up with those three days? Any of you ever thought of this? This is bantered around by skeptics, uh, doubting the truth and veracity of this book, of this Easter story in particular. Three days, it wasn't three days. It was midday Friday, that dark day when the sun didn't shine, when when it was a really painful time. That was Friday, and then Sunday, the Easter story happened. That's technically not three days. So let's... Close the book and go home. It's not true, right? Anybody literal? Anybody very analytical like that? Let me say this. It's always, in in interpreting this book, it's always vital to enter into it to get the context. And here's the context. In the Hebrew world, in that first century Jewish world, they weren't obsessed with time like you are. 
how do I know you're, you're saved? Robert, you don't know me. I'm a visitor. Well, you probably have a phone with a watch on it, right? You got a, you got, some of us carry it on our wrist. Like we think of hours, minutes, and seconds. There's a clock on the back wall. Do y'all see that? Some of you can have a vantage point. That clock is for me. Our staff put it there. You know what they've done? They fast-forwarded it a little bit to fool me. Like how evil is our staff to hoodwink the pastor? Like we are obsessed. Our minutes, seconds. That's how we think of time. And so come on, this wasn't three days. But here in the Jewish world, in this world, when the sun came up, Again, they weren't obsessed with time like you are. When the sun came up, that was a day. When it set, when the sun came up again, that was a day. When the sun came up, set again, that was a day. So it's three days. If that's not satisfactory for some of you, uh, let me put it this way. Susan and I are married and we have three kids. They're kind of grown up now, most of them, all of them. But when, when we were younger and the children were younger, there were a few times early in my ministry days where I would go with some colleagues to a conference or such out of town. I would leave on a Friday and come back on a Sunday. I remember a time when I came back and Susan met me at the door with three children. And she said, RG, you've been gone for three days. The kids have been mine. Now they're yours. Now in that moment, again, I was gone on a Friday afternoon. I came back sometime midday Sunday. Did I look at her at any point and go, well, technically, it was about 36. Did I do that? No, I'm happily married today. Like, I didn't do that. I wouldn't do that. Let me ask you, in your heart, don't you know she had those three kids for three days? Are you, are you, is that okay with you? Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. That's how it rolled. Just a question for some of you skeptics. Here's something really important that I want to point out to this passage. Two things. It says in verse 6, the angels told the women to remember. And I look at that and being honest. I think, how can they forget? Like you saw it. Did you hear what John Maxwell read about the life of Jesus? Man, it was no longer same old, same old. This was an adventure like no other. The Greek word Zoe for life, that he was giving them an abundant life, and he promised them this. He was really clear, but they didn't remember. But here's what I want to say to you. They were going through Friday and Saturday. The dark days. And what I know about me, I'm going to guess is true of you. When it's dark, you forget what God has told you. When it's really difficult, you forget his promises. They're not true. He never said them. And so these women are told to remember. And they go back and it seems like the fellas were forgetful too. Even being more obnoxious because men are more obnoxious. And they're like, this is an idle tale. Really? How could they do that? And I love it says the ESV, English Standard Version, my choice of Bible study. It says that, the, that Peter rose. In some translations, I like this better, it says that Peter jumped. Now, hear me. This is the heart of the Easter message for you today. Hear me, hear me. It doesn't say that Peter thought, eh, I'm, I'm running some errands today, and when I get on that side of town later, I might stop by and see. Doesn't say that. Peter didn't say that. Peter said, man, I'm jumping up, and I'm going. Why? Peter, the last week of Jesus' life was the worst week of Peter's life. 
I'll never deny you. Like, I'm tight. I'm in the inner circle. These guys will, but not me. Jesus said, yes, you will. Who was right? Jesus. Jesus said, and um, I got to visit this garden six or seven weeks ago with my wife and with friends. And in the garden, Jesus prayed to the Father. Let this cup pass from me. He had told these disciples, he had told them, stay awake and pray. And Peter's like, they may sleep, but I'm not. I'm your guy, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to do what you said. And Peter was asleep. And Peter, with a personality a little bit too much like mine and maybe a few of you's, when the Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus, he grabs a Roman soldier's sword and cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus touches and heals. And Peter had overreacted, and he thought, hey, let's, let's overthrow our pagan oppressor kingdom. And he didn't get it. And so Peter, like some of you, was eager to atone for his mistakes, like recent mistakes. Peter jumps, Peter rises, and Peter goes. So interesting, so interesting, so interesting. I learned this this week, just doing a little study, that the word hope, the word hope is used 71 times in the New Testament, 71, once before the resurrection, 70 times after the most revolutionary moment human history hope hope is what we need neighbor Peter is your story mistakes have knocked you down and it's a dark time and you're not sure about getting up and there is this invitation John in his account would call Peter out he has Jesus saying hey bring him here breakfast on the beach any of you know this story oh and Peter like, do you realize that's the heart of the Savior? Like, we're not like this. Like, we judge and we're like mean and nasty. Can I just say that? But like, the heart of the Easter story is a Savior that says, oh, the guy that's made the biggest mistake, him. Make sure he comes to have breakfast on the beach. I was reading, I'm going to close with this, but I was reading the New York Times Recently, it was talking about our college students. Not college students, but particularly Ivy League university students. You guys know the Ivy League, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, Columbia, Cornell, Dartmouth, and Penn. I can name them, I just couldn't get in any of them. And this woman, Catherine DeWitt, was depicted in this article. She grew up in California in the northern part in the Bay Area. And since kindergarten, she had these expectations placed on her that she would enlist in a prestigious university. And she made it into Penn, the University of Pennsylvania, and she would get up at 6 a.m. every day, and she would uh, prepare and study, and she would go to class. And part of her financial aid package, she would have to work 20 hours a week, and she'd be involved in clubs and organizations and get home at 11 p.m. She was furiously studying. She was particularly worried about a multivariable calculus class in a New York Times article in telling the story. Catherine DeWitt tells that she 
failed the class. She didn't just fail the class, she bombed. And she began cutting. She Googled. She Googled, will your, if, if you take your life, will your parent be reimbursed for that semester's tuition? The level of pressure that we feel. In fact, post-Easter, starting next Sunday, we're doing a sermon on fear in an age of anxiety. And can I tell you that the Easter message is not one of performance love. You need to be freed of that. Because you know what? We're not, we're not performing very well. Like, you fail and I fail. Like, we, we're sinners. And there's this gift that the Savior gives. In fact, on the back of this magazine that I bought last night late at Walgreens, it's got the Jesus, who do you say that I am? Here is the man. Explore the life and legacy of the most influential person in history. On the back, there's artwork, and it has Matthew 3.17. I love Matthew 3.17. It's a father of three as a son, as a pastor, and Jesus was baptized. We were there on the Jordan River, and the heavens opened, and the Spirit descended like a dove, and the voice of the Father said, what? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He hadn't gone to the cross. This was pre-resurrection. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And there's a weight that we feel. We miss His love. But God demonstrated, you know, Rome was demonstrating their power. Look up Rome. How are they doing? But God was demonstrating his love for us that while you were a sinner, he died for you. He wants you to be his. He is pleased with you. Would you stand? Father, we thank you for Easter Sunday. Thank you for these songs we will sing and close. Lord, for the prayers that will be offered. Who is Jesus? Lord, let us fall. Let us land where we need to in this. Strengthen our, our beliefs. Help us overcome our doubts. Lord, I thank you for what happened. And I've been to Graceland and I've hung out, fortunately, with some famous people from time to time. To walk where you walked and to be there, to see that God came. The creator entered the creation. Lord, you're moving in my life and in my heart. Lord, you're moving in our midst. We want to be yours. We want to know the power that he, you, are risen. In Jesus we pray. Amen. I'm going to stand down front with another staff person and likely my wife. And we're here to pray for